Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Today we have Dr. Eric Singman from Baltimore, Maryland. He works uh, as a neuro-ophthalmologist at the Baltimore VA, and he has in some way or another cared for vets uh, and active duty military at the DOD Vision Center of Excellence for 20 years, you said, I believe? It's been last about 12, actually. I've been, oh. I've been a neuro-ophthalmologist about 30 years, but 30 years. I've been, I've been involved with the, um, the folks in the military one way or another since the, since the VC started in 2011. Very awesome. Nice. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, as always, Brandon is here with me as oh. well. Hello, everyone. And uh, we're really appreciated that you're coming on. My pleasure. All right, so let's get down to business. Um, you know, one of the first things we ask people is, is uh, you know, we, we really look to make uh, researchers more human, uh, healthcare practitioners more human. And so we'd like to know where, like, where you came from and what your history is. What, like, where did you grow up at and how did you become a, to the point you are now? Uh, I'm a, well, I grew up in Queens, New York, mm-hmm. and I spent most of my life uh, in terms of my training in New York City, uh, mm-hmm. in Manhattan or Brooklyn or Queens. And when I finally um, finished my my um, training, which included my MD and my PhD, which is in uh, so my PhD is in vision um, problems associated with optic nerve damage, uh, trauma in particular. I then uh, went to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I served in private practice for 14 years. But during that time, I was involved in other ventures. So I, I was called and recruited to help stand up the Vision Center of Excellence, the Department of Defense VA, um, VCE, and where I met some of those wonderful people mm-hmm. I, I've ever met, and I, I, I'm still in touch with them today. I've got to not only consult with them at that time, um, but oh, even had other consulting opportunities with them later on, and do, do research with them, publish research with them. And I focused my practice on brain injury medicine, my fellowship in ophthalmology was in a hospital called Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center. And that used to be called the Hospital for the Incurables. Um, it was a place uh, where patients who had very, very severe injuries, either birth injuries or brain injuries were taken. And um, it became a more of a rehab style hospital, but I, it was a wonderful place to learn and try to help patients. And so I stayed on that. When I went to Lancaster, I then was able to do that kind of work. Also, yeah. I worked a lot in low vision. I, I, not many neuro-ophthalmologists do low vision work. I felt it was an important skill set to develop, so I did that. Um, and I also was the consultant for a very large rehabilitation hospital in Lancaster. They have their own it's a dedicated rehab hospital. Uh, again able to not only grow professionally, but to help patients, patients who suffered um, from brain injury, because that's the majority of the patients there in the neuro unit were brain injury patients. When did you really get your passion to work with people who had brain injury and vision loss? That was very early on. That was actually probably during my PhD years. Um, I did my PhD years uh, between my um, first two years and last two years of med school. The first two years are called the basic science years. The last two years are called the uh, clinical care rotations. 
but I had the opportunity to work with patients and see patients who suffered brain injury, particularly brain injury that affected their vision. And I always knew I wanted to do vision. I always knew I, I was fascinated by vision. I always wanted to be an ophthalmologist or some sort of vision care provider. But after seeing, I guess, the hopelessness at that time, we were talking 30 some odd years ago or more, uh, that these patients felt when you told them, I don't think we can do much for you. I said, there's got to be more than that. And as I started to learn the statistics involved in brain injury, how widespread it was and how much it was worsening and how much the numbers were growing, uh, it was something I I felt compelled to do. I felt a, a passion for it. And it just continues to grow as I had the privilege of working with patients who suffered brain injury and wanted to get better and demonstrated that they got they could get better. Some of those patients were indeed veterans. And I'll tell you one thing I learned about ex-military guys and women, they're tough as nails. I mean, it's just yeah. it's, like, it's like, okay, I lost my arm. What's the problem? I have another one. It's like, no, 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 it's what? <laughs> and so they were they were just amazing faith and amazing courage and amazing strength. And that that said, okay, if you're willing to work that hard, I'm willing to work that hard with you. And that was that was kind of the fun part of it, too. You meet people like just a perfect example is Tom Zampieri, who, who the, our mutual friend. I mean, it's just this guy's amazing. You just it's just like you don't you wouldn't know talking to him that he can't see. It's just it's a miracle. So so but but I wanted to do as much as possible to do more than just workarounds. And so my research in optic nerve regeneration was was guided towards that. And the work I've done with vision rehab for the neuromotor, the visual motor parts of brain injury has been guided towards rehabbing things rather than just developing workarounds, which is what low vision does, rather developing things that might be able to get patients back functioning where they could use the tools that they have rather than find new tools because they can't use the tools they have. Um, so, well, Eric, you had talked about, well, yeah, something that like struck me there is, uh, we're learning as we're going through the, se- uh, the season with all our interviews, Jed, the, the resilience of these veterans, uh, who are having these, uh, these vision issues just blows my mind. Uh, you're talking about, um, and I think like this is probably be a topic like we get asked once in a while about, uh, uh, neuroregeneration, um, in terms of your research. Can you talk a little more about that? Like, what, what, what are you looking at in, in regards to research there? Okay. So, personally, I'm not involved in the neurogenerative research. research. Mm-hmm. My, research sure. my research and my clinical efforts are mostly taking the patients with what they got and trying to rehab um, mm-hmm. what they have. But the neuroregenerative research efforts are pretty amazing. Um, and every year I get astounded that they're doing more things. Um, from 3D printing um, parts of the body, particularly the solid parts like bone, so that the infrastructure, if you will, of can be replaced. So for a perfect example, um, a brain can certainly work without a skull, but it's much better to have a skull. Yeah. So a face can certainly work if it's misshapen, but it's much better for the eyes to be the way they used to in the same plane, the same platform. And so you get someone with these terrible injuries 
uh, especially theater injuries where they're explosive injuries and they'll come in with missing pieces of face and skull and we can reprint 3D print the missing pieces to make them look basically like they used to look based on either old photos or mirror images of the of the side that wasn't affected and we can so already that gives us platforms that we could work with. Uh, there are other exciting things. Of course, stem cell research is always exciting because um, there's more and more information to suggest that certainly within the next 10, maybe 20 years, uh, we'll be able to regenerate certain parts of the brain with stem cells and, and allow function to return, again, rather than a workaround, give them back what they had. Vision's a tough one. Vision's a tough one, partly because of the fact that the visual system spans the length and width of the brain. And as it, it develops by nerves growing and following certain pathways and making certain connections, and these are the longest nerves in the head, the nerves that, let's say, control the eye muscles so that you can look up, down, left, and right, those nerves actually start in the back of the head and make their way all the way forward. Mm -hmm. uh, the nerves that actually control a little bit of the lid opening and your pupil getting bigger and smaller, those nerves start in the brain, go down the neck, down the chest, up the neck, and back into the head. So some of these are very long nerves. And so some of them are not may, may be harder to work with because you have to get, if you make nerves grow, they have to grow a very long distance. On yeah. the other hand, some brain structures, perhaps the visual association areas and perhaps the part of the occipital cortex that lets you see, those structures might be more amenable to growing because their connections in some ways are more local. Now they do have distal connections to other parts of the brain, but it's hoped that maybe some of them can be grown and, and any part of the brain um, we're hoping to do that. Obviously not just vision, but perfect example is Parkinsonism. Parkinsonism, we know the part of the brain that gets hurt. We know why it gets hurt. We know what happens to it. And we probably, I, I wouldn't be surprised if for that condition that has tremors and falls and people not being able to move the muscles, that, that may be, those connections are very cl close together. That may be a part of the brain. It's very exciting to fix. But the bottom line is neurogenerative research is occurring. People are working on it. Spinal cord research, the yeah. same thing. People are working on trying to replace the natural neural materials. Um, by the same token, people are also working to say, listen, I'm an engineer. I don't know about neural materials. I don't know about cells. I don't really care. I know that basically the human body is plumbing and wiring. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be straight with you. The yeah. blood vessels, right? So I'm going to work on plumbing and wiring. And so they are actually making advances that in some ways even faster. They're making advances. So you see people who, who are using their brain energy to get an exoskeleton and make themselves walk again. Yeah. Now that was science fiction 10 years ago. That was just, I, who are you kidding? Come on, stop it. Don't play with it. That's for movies. That's aliens. No, there are people walking up to the graduation ceremonies now with an exoskeleton and they're controlling because the bioengineer said, hey, I can't deal with, you know, I can't wait for you regenerative guys to go. I'm just, gonna, and, and they're doing it. By the same token, artificial hearts, artificial pancreases, artificial kidneys, the research there is exciting um, and it's, it's happening. So what about artificial eyes? Well, yeah, the research there is happening too. little tiny cameras 
that send information to an electrode array at the occipital cortex. And every year the cameras get better and every year the electrodes get finer to give you a better um, pixel, just, you know, pixel number, if you will. And every year we're getting closer to patients being able to see things that are valuable to them. So both tracks are going together and they're running in parallel and they're racing. And the government recognizes the value of funding these. Um, and I hope the government continues to do that and more, if you will. Um, but what's exciting is that I have a funny feeling that these two parallel tracks will eventually find a way to meet and work together. Yeah. And that's going to be super exciting. And I tell you right now, um, all things being the same, at the speed we're working with things like artificial intelligence, where we're having computers tell us what the best options are. We're having computers determine what might be the best path to go and what best success, where we can check different theories, theoretically, rather than in the lab, I got a feeling that things are just gonna accelerate. Yeah, you know, when 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 I found out you work on TBI and vision loss, I got really excited because we my work focuses on TBI at, at, at the Iowa City VA and photophobia specifically that goes along with that after people get you know post-traumatic headache and and things like that and you know i'm trying to study the underlying circuitry of that and stimulating whether or not we can stimulate different parts of the brain to stop headache or photophobia and you know this all fits together um you know we're using machine learning to study faces brandon's been yeah. really really big on that project and all this technology is coming to bear fruit finally, right? And what you're talking about, which is really neat and understanding these pathways in a better fashion helps people like what you're talking about, bioengineers target these circuits, target these brain areas that are important for this sort of uh, rehabilitative medicine, if you will. I think it's safe to call it that. Yeah, we definitely definitely recognize the collaborative race between uh, engineering aspects of uh, looking at these things and the biological aspects of it. You know, we've really started to embrace it. Um, I love getting bioengineering students, for example, undergraduates. They're amazing. They think outside the box. They take their engineering prowess and apply it to our biology, and it's really, really exciting. Mm -hmm. And they know math. They know uh, math. Yeah, yeah, that's a plus. <laughs> <laughs> computer programming. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, I, I, I've worked with bioengineers now on a couple of different projects, and these these were students, these are grad students and stuff, and they just blew me away. I just felt like a dummy. I mean, I feel like I felt like a, a turkey flying with eagles. These kids were so amazing, <laughs> and it was just scared the heck out of me. Uh, and you know, you mentioned glare. That happens to be a pet subject of mine only because of the fact that. You know, it's something you really get your teeth into because everyone gets it. I mean, I, I, I've yet to see a TBI patient not get it. And, you know, it used to be, I remember everyone's getting, you know, there's a, there's a huge market. People make money from FL41 lenses, uh, which is supposed to, which, which wasn't, were meant for migraine patients for fluorescent lights. And that's all they were, that was the one paper that was published on it. And, 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 and then, um, other people started coming and, and then I think the worst disservice that ever happened to that where there were articles written about glare where if someone comes in with sunglasses it's called the sunglass sign it means they're probably faking it means they're probably in litigation they want to just look bad and I'm thinking to myself how do you say that how do yeah. you say that I said do you realize that think let's think like a patient for a second 
Okay, yeah, maybe some lawyer told the patient, look sick, or maybe, I, I, I can't believe a lawyer could do that. No offense, if I'm going to get canceled for this, I apologize. I have friends <laughs> who are lawyers. Okay, but on the other hand, patients desperately want to have some control over their condition, even if it's grasping a straw. Are you going to take that away from them? Don't. If they say glasses make me feel a little tiny bit better, give it to them. Yeah. But the other thing about that is, and this is something, you know, I speak, I've spoken to Randy Carden, who's over there at I.O. with you guys about glare. And um, and I can tell you that that it's 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 a, it's a toughie because I've tried what I've done lately, me personally, is I went to Noir Sunglasses. You probably know them. They're online. N-O-I-R Sunglasses. They have a trial frame. They have a trial kit of, of, of like 40 different lenses. Um, another, a lot of companies have that. Um, Noir has that. Um, a um, let me see. Well, uh, there are a couple of low vision places that have that too. Trial kits of different colors. And so I get, I bought the trial kit. It's like seventy five, hundred bucks, something like that. Yeah. And I give it to my. It's on a big ring. And I give it to my patient. And I say, go out into the waiting area with your windows and just see if any color makes you more comfortable don't worry if it makes it more comfortable these and and the nice thing about them that they, they come in different colors but they also come in different densities so I, I i have them say you know i say don't just look for the color if you just say oh it's darker it's more comfortable be careful about that and they often tell they, every one of them come back to me and so far i've done this maybe 60 100 times since i bought the set it's always a different color I, it blew my mind. I said, you would think to be always, oh, it's always yellows, always blues, always greens. It's always a different color. I mean, I, and am I lazy? And should I have already done a study on this? Yes, I should have. I'm lazy. I'm sorry. Okay. I just, it's my fault. But I, I, I but I'm probably going to do, I, I probably want to do a retrospective study and see what colors they were, were chosen. Um, because I tell the patients, once you find a color you like, call Noir Sunglasses. And I promise, I don't get any money from Noir. I'm not, I'm not, there are other companies that sell dark glasses. I'm sure they're all perfectly fine. But call Noir and ask them because they have good customer service. They say, all right, I like this color. I need a dark one for outdoors and a light one for indoors. And Noir usually has that or can make that. And they make them in all sorts of different sunglasses. So like if it's a guy who is a former military and he wants to wear something that looks like an Oakley because you know, has a, a, a big, you know, CDI factor, the chicks dig it factor. Um, they'll get something cool looking. All right. Whereas if it's, if it's one of my other patients who don't, don't give a rat's whatever about how they look, they just want no, they will be comfortable. You know, they, so they come in different frames of cover, but, but they, but they end up getting usually two frames, one with dark, one with light, and they often really are really happy. Yeah. And, you know, it's the, it was the it was the, one of the most least expensive fun things I've did for glare patients. The feedback I usually get is it's not perfect. Nothing is. It's more comfortable and I'm more I feel better and great because a lot of my um, glare patients never get completely better. Yeah, never get completely better. Many of them, I guess, adapt. Many of them learn to deal with it. Many of them have workarounds. Many of them, you know, they like working in natural light. That's a workaround. They seem to like that better than artificial light. Many of them, you know, uh, adjust their computer screens, invert the contrast, and look at white letters on a black background to so the less glary, you know, um, real estate on the screen. But whatever it is, it's such a pervasive problem that I love hearing that people work on it. Randy told me it was so exciting, and I would love to see 
studies that bear out, you know, my personal experience that it's, it, it seems to be the, 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 the colors all over the map. Have you, yeah. may I ask you if your work has found that in, are there any particular colors they seem to like or any groups that they seem to like anything? There's, there's colors that we know they dislike. Uh, blue light typically yeah. is, is bad, makes it worse. Red light can also do the same. And Rami Burstein from Harvard has done a really good set of studies on green light, uh, showing that green light or different, I think, um, uh, colors of green are actually lower headache pain levels in people. Um, that's pretty set it pretty cool set of studies. Yeah, I know anecdotally those new headlights that are uh, <clears throat> like bright blue. I always find them a little more obnoxious at light than the or at night than the uh, the warm yellow ones, but. I, I think it, I think it's a, this. I think it's awesome to hear about. Uh, like this is a research aspect that has a practical solution. Like if I if yeah, like if it helps the patient out, like it, I think that's great. That's that's amazing. Um, you know, uh, if we could back up a little bit, I have a couple questions about the optic sure. nerve, sure. and the optic nerve is the you know the, the the large bundle of nerves that carries vision back to the visual cortex in the brain and you can correct me if i'm wrong but it's a very simple <laughs> well it's close it, the optic nerve goes from the eye to the thalamus and then okay. the thalamus sends a second sensor is a relay station from the for, to the brain so I'm it's terrible. really you missed it by just just a little so close. <laughs> that's why i have a phd and not an md just throw it out <laughs> all right so um you know one thing i really think about when people or or when i'm when i'm listening to the vision talks at the vision center we work for when a person suffers a TBI, whether it be a blast injury or a severe trauma to the head, uh, you know, impact, what happens to the, these long nerves when that occurs? Because these nerves traveling from the eye to the thalamus, that's pretty long. Yeah. You know, that's what, what, what happens to these nerves when that occurs? A lot. And I'm glad you mentioned the two types of injuries because, um, you know, working with the military, um, you know, we recognize that there's there's blast and there's blunt and 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 they're logarithmically different in terms of energies so starting with blunt um and in the middle is ballistic okay so let's start with blunt um with a blunt injury we know depending on the location let's let's say even if the nerve itself isn't hurt directly in fact my, one of the papers i published was about indirect traumatic optic neuropathy the energy hits the head, particularly the, especially when the energy is frontal or temporal. The two things happen, we think, that hurt the nerve. First, the optic nerve is, as you said, is long. Um, it's centimeters long. And considering how small they are, that's pretty long. And the nerve has to go through a one centimeter long bony canal to get from the eye socket, which we call the orbit, to the inner in part of the, the intracranial part of the brain. There's laxity from the eyeball to the eye socket entrance of that intracranial canal of that canal. And that's important because otherwise if there, if there was no laxity, you, if it was tight, you couldn't look around. So there has to be some slack. Mm -hmm. So usually that part of the nerve, because there's slack, at least with a blunt injury is probably okay. On the other hand, that canal may not be so okay. 
With a blunt injury, it may very well be that the entrance and exit point of the canal are deformed, and that deformation might squeeze the nerve and or the blood supply to it. In addition, when the nerve leaves the canal to go into the brain and is attached to a structure called the optic chiasm where the two nerves meet, there's no slack there at all. And remember, when the brain gets a blunt injury, it reverberates inside the head. Yeah. Because it's loose, it's floating in CSF. The brain can reverberate, but the nerve is attached to the skull. So it can't reverberate, it gets pulled upon. So we think there are two, mechanism of two mechanisms of damage in blunt injury, deformation of the bone, which can hurt the nerve by crushing it, and stretching of the nerve, both of which can damage the nerve badly. When these things happen, we know that patients can lose a little vision to all of it. We know they can get a little better to completely better. And all the combinations in between. We don't know why some folks lose a little and some folks lose a lot. We don't know why some folks get better and some folks don't. And we all we do know is that we have no, we have no way to treat it. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, one of the research papers we published through the Defense and Veterans Eye Injury Registry of the Vision Center of Excellence, mm -hmm. using that big data set, which was a wonderful set, was that patients with traumatic brain injury generally don't suffer severe low vision. Now, what I mean by low vision is not reduce, reduction of visual field, but reduction of significant reduction of visual acuity. So we don't see, man, there's not, there's really a low, there's not much of a correlation between brain injury and patients who get much vision much worse than 2070 or 2040. And that's really important because it suggests that, and these are guys who have been in the field, helmets work. So at least for this condition of indirect traumatic optic neuropathy, where there's damage directly to the damage indirectly to the nerve through some energy process. It looks like helmets are good protection and the current helmets are good protection, which yeah. is pretty awesome. Yeah. Now we get to ballistic injury. You guys probably know as much as I about the fact that the helmets can prevent to some extent from a glancing ballistic injury, but if it's a direct ballistic injury, depending on the size of the shell, obviously yeah. the helmet may not be able to do as much. And so, a ballistic injury is may you you may have to deal with penetration to the um, parts of the brain, and that could simply cut fibers, and that's that's sure. end of game. Blast injury is a whole different ball game. Helmets do not prevent against blast injury. Well, again, let me back up. There are multiple types of blast. So there's the primary blast, and the secondary crochet, right? So one type of blast injury is the blast wave. Yeah. One type of blast injury is the blast throws some of the service personnel against a hard object. Yeah. One type of blast, the next type of blast is they throw a hard object against the service personnel, like a rock or some shrapnel. And then there's the chemical effects of it, like the burn. And then there's the thermal, other type of thermal. So this is up to quintanary blast injury. But let's just talk about the energy wave, just the energy yeah. wave. Yeah. That energy wave likely does damage on a microscopic level remember that a blast causes a vacuum bubble it gets rid of all the air everything in a certain area there's nothing there it's a vacuum it's a blast 
that sudden change in very, very low atmospheric pressure actually can, remember, if you take any liquid and you put it in zero pressure, it bubbles and goes into the atmosphere, vaporizes. Mm -hmm. So you can get micro vaporization in the brain, and that may happen at the level of the optic nerve and other brain tissues. Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't happen for a long time. It's not a long process. The blast is very fast. And so it does, there may not be a lot of it. And it may be microscopic damage that's able to be healed. But there's no question that when patients come to us with blast injury, they have global problems with protein manifestations. And the reason vision is almost always affected is because, as I said, almost perhaps half the brain, one way or another, if you counted up the cells of the fibers, is involved in vision. Mm -hmm. I mean, the optic nerves alone are a million fibers each. The frontal cortex is involved in moving your eyes and deciding where you want to move your eyes. The occipital cortex is involved in interpreting what you see and telling your brain and interpreting what you see. The other parts of the cortex are involved in making the eyes work as a team. The midbrain is involved in making the eyes move and work as a team. So the whole brain is so much involved in vision that these patients always come with some sort of visual problem. So in, in the book chapters that I wrote with Carrie Balaban, who also worked with the VCE with me, there in the book chapter, uh, he wrote the textbook. I just wrote the book on vision, um, but that, that that textbook on so-called mild traumatic brain injury. Yeah, we mm -hmm. talk about which, by the way, one of the points of the book was there's no such thing. It's a misnomer. It's like being a little pregnant. Okay, so but we talk about how how wide how widespread vision is because the brain is so much vision oriented. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, uh, that's, that's awesome. That, that, that's a really good description. It's one of the better descriptions I've heard of a blast injury. You know, one thing I think that also is important to discuss maybe, and you can totally correct me if I'm wrong, but the shearing force of that wave, right? It can shear the nerves in the brain. That's right. So that's it's exactly like, correct. yeah. And so, cause the brain is more like liquidish, if you will, than the air surrounding it. So when you get a change of phase like that, uh, from a blast wave, it can cause damage when it changes phases. Would you be able to discuss that a little bit? To some extent, the bioengineers will do a better job of the, but the brain has a couple of very interesting parts about it. First, it's inside a solid. So the skull is solid. Yeah. And solid transmits um, waves pretty well. I mean, you know, you knock on your table and you listen at the end of a table and you hear pretty well. Right? That's, that's the basis of drums, right? Yeah. Um, then you have the liquid portion and liquid transmits also the cerebrospinal fluid. Then you have the brain tissue, which is not, it's, it's more solid than liquid, but it's definitely not solid as a, as a rock like the skull. So you have these different phase changes as the transporting. And I've always personally wondered, you know, if you ever see shine a light through, a, through air, then through, a, 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 let's say, a water and then through air again, and you get those ref refractions, I've always wondered whether the energy as it goes through the different media in some way changes and has and there's an effect on the tissues as it does so i i i, I can't speak to that um but i've always wondered you know is, is there a is there a perhaps an underlying either protective element or weakness to the fact that the brain is in a water bath inside a solid medium so i've always wondered about that but getting to your point about sheer injury Certainly with ballistic and blunt, 
we mm-hmm. already know that there's sheer injury. So it makes sense it's going to be with with blast as well. And yeah. even though um, diffusion tensor imaging as an imaging modality is not is still considered a research tool. And it's not really it's you know, even though you know there's some places that do it and people want to show like in court in tort cases, oh look, this patient had had, had injury because the DTI is, is abnormal. Um, it's it's not ready for prime time yet in that regard, but certainly as a research tool, it's been effective in demonstrating in certain cases that the different fiber tracks have been disrupted Mm -hmm. um, because of things like shear injury and the energy that goes through them. And, And it's the fact that patients actually get better is a miracle in and of itself, because, you know, you with adult neural tissue you think generally especially central nervous system we don't think of regenerating real well and so i've always wondered whether the healing is regeneration or simply that the tissue was strong enough not to die and just can get healthy again um or and and finally the other part i always wonder is you know the good lord's been kind to give us extra stuff yeah. In case we lose, like we have two lungs, but people can live on one lung. We mm-hmm. have, you know, someone could lose half their liver and still do fine. Two kidneys, right? So we've been we've been given extras. We've been given extra presence. It may very well be that brain tissue has some degree of redundancy in it. So when there is damage, we still have something we can work with and look human. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought. Um, I have like two more questions, maybe. Um, Take your time. Um, we try to aim for 45 minutes and we're coming up on 34 here. So, okay. Um, well, this has been awesome. Yeah, it's been really good. It's been a really good interview. So, um, you know, putting on your clinician boots for a second, what's difficult about treating, uh, TBI related vision loss versus other types of vision loss? Maybe there's no difference. Um, but I, uh, there's, there's, there's a big difference. In fact, I'm going to do something. Uh, hang on a second here. Uh, um, there's an article I just recently published um, uh, last year in the Journal of um, JCM Journal of Clinical Medicine, and it's entitled "From Provider to Advocate: uh, The Complexities of Traumatic Brain Injury Prompt the Evolution of Provider Engagement." I mm-hmm. saw that paper on your book. and basic right so there it's on and so the reason that I I published that paper was as a way of thanking the different brain injury organizations we have in our country who advocate for brain injury patients because it's amazing how difficult it is not only to be a brain injury patient but to be a caregiver for a brain injury patient. Um, and one of the things I talk about, and I teach this to the residents that I train, the ophthalmology residents I train is, is that, you know, brain injury, certain ophthalmology tasks are almost veterinary ophthalmology. I hate to say it that way, but mm-hmm. someone comes with a cataract, I don't, I mean, of course you want to speak to them, fine, but if that person doesn't speak at all, doesn't want to talk to you, doesn't even like you, he just wants to see better, and you examine, you see the dense cataract, 
okay, I may not develop a great relation with this guy, but he's going to see better. We're going to do a cataract surgery. He's going to see better. Okay. It's just like mm-hmm. if, if, you're, if, you're, if your dog came to you and you notice a cataract in their eye, they don't need to say a word. They, they, they're your dog. They love you. They're still good dogs. They can see out of the other eye, but you want them to cataract surgery. Yeah. And so again, all my colleagues with cataract surgery are going to hate me for this. Do not show this. <laughs> but but with brain injury medicine, you have to develop a relationship with the patient because anything that can go wrong does go wrong. The you know what hits the fan with these people. First, they let's just talk just briefly about the social issues with them. They often lose their job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they often lose their health insurance. And they then they lose their income and they might lose their house. And so all of a sudden, how are they going to get and they'll lose their car? How are they going to get to appointments? Who's going to make the appointments for they don't have internet access? They lose their computer. They lose their cell phone. How are they going to make appointments? How are they going to keep appointments? How are they going to communicate with the doctor? How are they going to get tests done? How are they going to pay for get tests done? Life is a, it can be a downward social spiral. When you look at the ranks of the people who are homeless, and you see the proportion that are veterans, it's horrifying because the numbers way disproportionate. When you see the ranks of people who go to prisons and have deal with drug and substance abuse, and you see the proportion that are veterans, it's horrifying. These are people who should be given, in my opinion, as if you put on that uniform and yeah. you're not disar- and you're not dishonorably discharged. In my opinion, and you were honorably discharged for, or you were discharged for whatever, as far as I'm concerned, I'm a taxpayer, okay? I don't like certain taxes that I pay, but there was one tax I'm happy to pay, free health care for the remainder of the life of any veteran, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I've been an advocate for that, always will. I'm on a bad, and I'm a, cons- I'm a fiscal conservative. Okay, I think this government spends money on stuff that's ridiculous. Okay, you see how much elections cost twelve billion dollars for an election. I mean, Mike, Mike Bloomberg spent half a billion dollars for ads to get three electoral votes. I'm so even if they liked them, it's too. He could have paid five, half a billion dollars. You know how much health care he could have given for our veterans yeah, for wild. that instead. Wild. Yeah, yeah so it's completely. So so. Just the health problems, just the social problems get in the way of the health problems. But if you have someone at least who has a, a loving caregiver, a family member, a support member, all right, you get past that blockade. Job one is to teach that health caregiver how to be an advocate for their patients. As I say to my patients, it takes a village for a TBI patient. And once you have that village, I try to create a network for my patients because oftentimes there isn't a vision center of excellence for them to go to. So I try to create a network for my patients of different providers, and I try to teach that caregiver how to be the guide. If you have, God forbid, someone has to go to a cancer center, the first thing they assign to you is a patient guide or a patient walkthrough. It's usually a nurse practitioner, a nurse, an advocate, somebody, so that that person not only understands the medical jargon, but also can explain to the patient, well, you, yes, you have an oncologist, but you also see this surgeon, you also see this endocrinologist, because you also see this doctor and that doctor and this doctor, and the patient gets it, and they know they have someone to contact as a guide. Brain injury patients deserve centers of excellence where things are under one roof but if they can't have that at the very least they deserve a guide who can take them to the different providers who may not be under one roof but at least work as a team yeah and so that's the second thing we do is to teach 
not only is to try to help the patient with the social problems, but if they have a guide, teach that guide to be an advocate. Once they have that, which are two biggies, once they have an advocate, then it's the doctor's job to ask the patient everything because nothing's off the table. You ask, you, 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 people are shocked. I ask my patients, my, my male patients, are you tired a lot? Are you sleeping well? How's your libido? Because yeah. neuroendocrine damage happens with traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And guys don't like to talk about that. But they need to talk about that because I had one patient, I had one patient come in because his libido was kind of down, so he started using Viagra. The only problem is he got an ischemic optic neuropathy from the Viagra and went blind in one eye. Did the Viagra cause it? Well, there, it's probably likely it's the causative of it. You know, the, the research suggests it may be a risk factor for it, okay? But he went blind in one eye because he had um, ED. And he had ED because he had a traumatic brain injury. So it all comes back to it. Another patient I had a traumatic brain injury and he became a couch potato when he put on 75 pounds and he developed sleep apnea. And from the sleep apnea, he developed elevated intracranial pressures from the sleep apnea. So he came into me because he had swollen optic nerves, which happens with that. When you look at traumatic brain injury, you go back to the source, it affects every part of your body. So it's the doctor's job that if not, if you're not going to ask the patient, at least educate them. So one of the reasons I wrote that article is to educate the patients and their caregivers to not be afraid to ask the doctor, even if it's not the doctor especially. Hey, hey, Eric, I know you're an eye doctor, but you know, I've been having a pain in my back. Is there someone you could talk to me who I could see about that? That's that's what you want to do. Well, it really highlights how everything everything's interconnected, everything works yeah. together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Eric, I got a question then. Uh, what are you most excited about, like moving forward with vision research and TBI? Like what is like we kind of touched upon that earlier on in the episode, but personally for you, what are you most excited about uh, what's been developing? What is kind of on the horizon? I'm most excited about some of the research I'm seeing that personalizes the care for our deployed service personnel who might become veterans thereafter. And you guys both know that everyone goes through a pre-deployment physical. Mm -hmm, Right, no problem. But the pre-deployment physical, we want to be as granular as possible and as tailed as possible, but also if it's so complex that it's inexpensive and unwieldy, we can't use it. So I'm seeing more and more devices that do rapid testing of some of the metrics we see associated with concussion and brain injury mm-hmm. that can be done within literally minutes. So it doesn't eat up a big part of the pre and physical so that when Trooper Smith goes into battle and, and it was exposed to blast, I have Trooper Smith's numbers of how his pupils react, how his, how, how his speed of convergence and pursuits and saccades, those different visual motor things that can be affected, how his reaction time is. And I know his exact numbers pre-deployment when he was perfectly healthy. Now I can compare Trooper Smith, not to some average, I can compare Trooper Smith to Trooper Smith mm-hmm. before and afterwards. 
And I now can tell if Trooper Smith was specifically hurt compared to Trooper Smith. And I'm really excited about that because it personalizes the medicine for each individual trooper so that I can say, listen, so I don't under or overestimate the blast. Look, if I have a squad out there and there was a blast and I need that squad out there and I, I don't want, I, if they have a blast, do I pull every member of the squad in because I'm a fear they got a blast injury? I mean, I'll definitely get anyone who did have a blast injury, but now I have a, I, I have a need for a squad out there and I'm going to send another group out there. Can't do that. If I could quickly and rapidly in the field with a, with a, with a, in, in, in hostile environments, be able and, and, and austere environments, be able to test Trooper Smith quickly with this little handheld device. You're okay, pal. You did good. But Trooper Jones, I think you better come back with me. Look at the difference that makes. So yeah. that's one of the things I'm totally stoked about because that's coming. That's on the horizon. I've seen some of the instruments. I've seen some of the work. Some of it's not ready for prime time yet, but they're getting very close, certainly within the next five years. That's awesome. All right. This is the fun part of the interview, Dr. Singman. Um, this was fun. I just, yeah, no, I've, I've enjoyed the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But this is uh, something off the cuff. So uh, you are excited about TBI research, but what are you excited about outside of research and outside of your career? What do you do for fun? I play bagpipes. Whoa. Nice. Wow. That's badly. Cool. I play bagpipes. <laughs> I I, I, I I don't I don't I don't play for anyone who actually knows how to play, but for people who don't know how to play, I sound darn good. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's 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 what it's about, man. Oh, you'd have me convinced. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I have some hobbies I'm not so good at either, but people think I'm good at them. That's, that's the whole good. point. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Well, hey, I really want to thank you for coming on today. Um it's been a great interview. You're, you're very knowledgeable and, and it's, it's really great to see someone who's passionate about treating veterans. And uh, I, I agree with you 100%. You know, I've had a lot of military members in my family and it's, it's like a moral obligation to treat these people in my opinion. And mm -hmm. uh, we are definitely on the same page when it comes to that. And that's really exciting. So um, anyway, once again, thank you for coming on the Vets First podcast. It's been a really great interview. Thank you so much for having me. And please, I have a, I have a couple of people I know down there. Just say Eric says hi. To, so they'll know who I am. Uh, okay, yeah. And, and I just, I, I, I'm so grateful. I wish you guys the best of success. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.